All right, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, please. Starting in verse 1. I'm sure this is familiar to you. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they, are em- they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Well, Father, I want to pray also as we engage your word this morning that you would engage us through your spirit that lord each one of us here myself included would draw near to you as we hear from you and we learn about you and our lives that have been so transformed by Christ. Lord, please glorify yourself in each person here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In our lives, we don't always see how God uses our labors, our work to advance his kingdom. But we should never give up when we don't see the results. There is often times where we have labored for not just hours and days, but sometimes weeks and years to labor for God, and still we see little if no fruitfulness. And the preacher has the same perspective here in Ecclesiastes 11. He is, and he is challenging the reader, he's challenging us to live faithfully by trusting God's often hidden plans for our future. And he uses experiences from everyday life in this passage to make his point. The unknown outcome should not determine how faithful we will be in obeying God's commands. The unknown outcome of our labor, the unknown outcome of how we live for Christ, the unknown outcome of our hard work should not determine how faithful we will be in obeying God's commands. And so here's my proposition for you this morning. The preacher tells us to live boldly by faith, not letting the uncertainties of life hold us back from taking faith risks for the glory of God. The preacher tells us to boldly live by faith, not letting the uncertainties of life hold us back from taking faith risks for the glory of God. In Ecclesiastes 11, there are commands given about 
practical living, but the Bible, and this is what you'll see in, in Ecclesiastes 11, there, there's much practical commentary here. But the Bible is not a self-help book. Its storyline runs much deeper. It is the story of God's redeeming acts motivated by his love for his creation. These six verses are not primarily about how we are to succeed in business by taking risks. Although there are some practical applications here, but these six verses are about living by faith. Faith in an all-wise God. The preacher is showing us both spiritual realities that he it has behind the practical realities. The preacher's appeal is that we should continue with, with faith to pray and serve and hope in the work that we do for God. Knowing that in the Lord, as it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. The work you do for God is both practical and spiritual, yes. And the risks we take and the uncertainties we face when sowing gospel seeds don't always reveal a fruitful labor. Throughout Ecclesiastes, the theme that the preacher has consistently maintained in this book is the uncertainty of life in this present world. Life is uncertain. And we read about it here in chapter 11. No one knows what will happen. Verse Verse 2, give a portion to seven or to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Verse 5, as you do not know the way of the Spirit, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening with not, withhold not your hand, for you do not know what will prosper. No one knows what will happen. This, that's a challenge. You wake up each day and you have a plan. Most of the time. You wake up each day and you go through a set of routine that gets your day going. And you close your day with typically the same routine. And you kind of know what's going to be happening during your day. Imagine waking up each morning not knowing what the next five minutes hold. Imagine living every day not knowing. And this is how the preacher in Ecclesiastes views life. That's the theme that he has constantly talked about in Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun. How do I live this life under the sun? This uncertainty in this present world that I live in. And it is often, as we have read throughout this book, it has often led him to despair. And his despair comes out in these words. Vanity. Vanity. Life is vanity. Life is brevity. It's it's meaningless. It's a vapor. It, it's just here. It's gone. And there's no point in really doing anything because it comes to nothing. And we don't even know what's going to happen at the next moment. And so in the face of much uncertainty, the question for us this morning is, do we live a life of faith? Because you 
face much uncertainty in your life. And these verses will help us understand, I believe, how to live under God's wise and gracious and sovereign rule when we're faced with uncertain and unknowable events that happen to us. Not unknowable events that we didn't know happened to us. Oh, did that happen to me? No, unknowable events where events happen and we have no reason to understand, no understanding why they happened. I think if I had a dollar for every time I felt or thought or said, why God? I'd be back in Charlotte, (laughs) sitting under an umbrella somewhere. (laughs) We live in a world filled with much uncertainty and the things that happen to us, the reasons are unknowable. And we want answers. We want answers. And I think these verses will help us. And so my main points for living a life of faith. We live a life of faith, three main points, by willingly taking risks for the kingdom because we believe God is always faithful. By responding boldly in the face of uncertainty because we believe God is always present. And by working diligently in the face of mystery Because we believe God is all wise. In the theological world, there is an approach to interpreting Scripture called the analogy of faith. Anybody hear of the analogy of faith? It simply means Scripture interprets Scripture. I get that right, Devin? Good. Working my way towards my master's. When we're we're not sure how a passage should be understood... What we do, what we should do, is find other passages that appropriately help us understand the one we're studying. Scripture interpreting Scripture, the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith helps us this morning in wisely understanding these Old Testament verses, which are very practical, but there's no mention of Christ in these verses. Ecclesiastes is never mentioned in the New Testament. We're not even sure who the author is. We're not sure the date of when this book was written. And so, interpreting these verses and drawing out of them, not reading into them, but drawing out of them what God is intending to speak to us this morning, we need the analogy of faith. We need to see how other scriptures can help us understand these passages. The first point is, we live a life of faith by willingly taking risks Because we believe God is always faithful. Verses 1 and 2. The author says, Cast your bread upon the water, for you will find it after many days. Cast your bread upon the water. The first command, and this is a command that the preacher is giving us, and he has four commands in these six verses. The first command that he is giving us is to trust God for the outcome. Trust God for the outcome. In casting your bread upon the water. What exactly does the preacher mean to cast your bread upon the waters? Does he mean to take a loaf of bread and toss it in the river, watching it float downstream, thinking that this soggy loaf is going to come back and it's actually going to be edible, that we're going to want it? Who's going to ever find a loaf of bread floating down the river? Who would want to eat it? 
Why not just keep it to yourself instead of wasting it by throwing it down some river? Uh, there have been numerous interpretations given for this verse, but having some idea of the historical setting of Ecclesiastes, it helps us to know that the preacher is writing primarily to a wealthy audience of typically nobles, young men who are well off, writing to an audience who would understand the concept of, of travel and trade in foreign lands. It seems most likely, and the most accurate interpretation is one of the cast your bread upon the water is about international trade. The casting of bread upon the waters is an image of a businessman who has this commitment and courage to take a risk. Kent Hughes says of this passage, he says, to cast your bread upon the water is to engage in international trade, sending grain or produce out to sea and then waiting for the ships to return with goods from other lands. To find it after many days is to receive the reward that eventually comes after taking the risk of a wise investment. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. So the preacher is talking about Taking risks and trusting in the outcome. Taking risks is what business is all about. But the preacher has something more spiritual in mind for us here. This isn't just a self-help business book that we can take home and say, okay, now great, get involved in international trade. I'm going to take some risks in business. Although you, application could apply. He wants us here to handle our spiritual business the same way we would handle daily business, practical business in life. Thinking what we invest in the kingdom of God, our time, our talent, our treasure, even when we take a risk, it's never wasted. And it always brings a return in our investment. Again, Kent Hughes says, if we want the blessings that God loves to give... We need to exercise our faith. Ships on commercial voyages might be long delayed before any profit resulted, yet one's goods had to be committed to them. Solomon's fleet, which brought back gold and silver, ivory and peacocks, sailed once in three years. Similarly, the preacher has called his readers to take life as from the hand of God and to enjoy it despite its trials and perplexities. Such a life contains within its elements the trust of adventure, cast, demands of total commitment for your bread is used in the sense of goods and livelihood, and has a forward look to it. You will find a reward which requires patience after many days. Now the spiritual behind that is for us. Our investment in the kingdom of God, our investment in the church, our time, our energy, our investment primarily in the sowing, seeding of the word of God into the lives of others. His next command in verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. There is, there is some practical business advice here. In other words, 
you could say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Spread out your investment. The stock market may plunge. A bank may fail. Ships may be lost at sea. And so we should plan for the possibility of losing some of our investments. But what, what does he mean spiritually here? What are the spiritual implications behind the preacher's telling us, is commanding us to give a portion. Michael Eaton, in his commentary, says, there are ways to apply this sound financial advice to the spiritual business of God's kingdom. The wise man will invest everything he has in the life of faith. Rather than holding on to what we have, hoarding it all for ourselves, the error that the man with the one talent made in the parable that Jesus told, Matthew 25, God invites us to be venture capitalists for the kingdom of God. This is not exclusively or even primarily about money. It is about having the holy boldness to do seven or eight things to spread the gospel and then waiting for God's ship to come in. Some of the things that we attempt may fail or at least seem to fail at the time. Some of the ministries we start, for example, or the churches we plant, or the efforts we make to share the good news of the cross and the empty tomb. But we should never stop investing with the gospel in as many places as we can. Whenever we engage in kingdom enterprises, we offer the Holy Spirit something, and He, he can and often will use to save people's souls. How often have you invested? Think of the investment you've made into the life of a local church and some of the difficulties that arise there. Think of the investment you've made into certain individuals. You've given your life to them. You've shared God's word with them. You've poured into them. And yet, you've seen little or no return. And what appears to be never any return is possible. Think about investing in your children, especially older parents here. You've invested in your children and yet you're not quite seeing the return you hoped for. This imperative here, this imperative to give, it speaks of being generous with what has returned to us from verse 1. You will find it after many days. We have received so much from the Lord. Freely you have received, so freely give. And rather than laying up treasures for yourself, we're to be rich towards God by being rich towards others. Because we want, because we don't know how long we're going to have what we have. He says here in verse 2, For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Paul had seasons of plenty. Paul had seasons of want. Paul suffered much. Paul, but he kept sowing. He kept investing. He kept giving. He kept taking risks. We live a life of faith, brothers and sisters, by willingly taking risks because we believe God is faithful. God will bring a return. God will find it for us after many days. God is the one. Let us be kingdom generous even in the face of the uncertainties of life. Secondly, we live a life of faith by responding boldly in the face of uncertainty because we believe God is always present. Verses 3 and 4. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Duh. 
And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, I don't know why he doesn't put east and west in here, but it could fall in any direction. It falls, it, it stays where it falls. It lays there. Kind of another, duh. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So all of us struggle all of us struggle with doubt. There isn't a person in this room who at some point during their lifetime, during their month, during their week, during their day, during their morning, does not struggle with doubt. Doubt about your decisions. Doubt about God really being present in your circumstances. Doubt, especially when we're not sure what's going on. And that doubt is often the cause that keeps us paralyzed from doing anything. When we doubt, we're afraid to do something. We're, we're not sure what to do. Not just in the practical matters of life, but more importantly in spiritual matters. The preacher in verse 3 wisely reminds us that we cannot control life. He just told us in verse 2 that we do not know what disaster might happen on earth. We cannot control life. Four times in this passage he says we do not know. We don't know how God works. We don't know why he allows our circumstances. We don't understand why he often creates these things in our lives and the uncertainty we have. And so we, we stand there and we do nothing. We're doubting. We're paralyzed. My grandson Sam living in Charlotte and all of five miles from the Lowe's Motor Speedway, um, has recently, as a six-year-old, would he's become very interested in NASCAR. So dad lets him watch NASCAR on, on television. And so when Sam and, and the family were here back at Easter time, I told Sam, when Gramps gets down to Charlotte, I'm taking you to the go-karts. We're going go-karting. Gramps is going to show you what NASCAR is kind of like. And Sam was all for it. Well, Sam also has a challenge. He doesn't like loud noises. Fireworks freak him out. Cheers from crowds freak him out. Loud noises. And so he wears these headphones that he calls his defenders. And uh, it's just, it's really, it's really cute and weird all at the same time. And so, so, I, so last Sunday afternoon after church, I told Sam, you know, we're going go-karting today. And so we, we drive over to the, the go-karts near the speedway, and it's pretty loud, and we park, and it's about a 10-minute walk from the car to the speedway. We get all the way there, and Sam looks at me and says, Gramps, I need my defenders. I said, Sam, it's, we can't drive all the way home. I mean, we just... Do you, do you not want to do the go-karts? No, I want to do it. Okay, Sam. So we stand there, and he just looks. I say, Sam, what do you want to do? I don't want to do the go-karts. Okay, Sam. Let's go home. I already bought the tickets, so we'll give them to your dad. Your dad can come back with your defenders, and you can go go-karting. About halfway back to the car, I said to Sam, would you like some ice cream? We didn't get to go-kart. Sam goes, no. Okay. So we continue walking, get close to the car. Sam looks at me, Gramps, I want to go ride the go-karts. Okay, Sam. Walk all the way back to the go-karts. Stand by the go-karts. Sam goes, the engines are too loud, Gramps. I don't want to do it. 
Well, Sam, there are little go-karts over here and they're not aside. You want to go look? Okay, so we go look. Stands there, no graphs, so I don't want to do that. Okay, Sam, let's go home and dad will bring you back. So we walk, get almost to the car. Sam goes, I think I can do this, Gramps. But I need to go to the bathroom first. <laughs> so we walk all the way to the mall. We go to the bathroom. We walk back to the go-karts. Third time we stand there, Sam goes, Gramps, the engines are too loud. I can't do this. Sam, you want to go to the little go-karts? Yeah, I can do the little go Okay, we'll go to the little go-karts. He stands there. Okay, Sam, let's, go. let's get in line. I don't want any children on the track when I'm on the track, Gramps. Okay, Sam, let's go home and we'll have Dad bring you back with your Defender. So we start walking back to the car. We get halfway back to the car. Sam goes, I'd like some ice cream now. <laughs> so we go into the mall and just as we get to close to the ice cream store, we pass this big thing of, of popcorn and Sam goes, Gramps, I'd really like some popcorn. Great. I buy him a big bag of caramel popcorn and a drink. We get in the car. We're driving home. We almost get to the house and I hear this push. And he spills the popcorn all over the car. Thankfully, it was David's car. And so uh, I, was, <laughs> I was fine with that. But what, <laughs> what it showed me was Sam, was Sam was the perfect example of verse 4. He who observes the wind and will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. He, he just stands there, and he can't make a decision, and he's paralyzed, and he doesn't know what to do, and he's, he's, and he's just, he's paralyzed. The farmer is standing in this fields. The clouds are ready to burst with rain. The wind has blown a tree down. These are natural events that the farmer knows he cannot do anything about because he has no control over nature. And just like in verse 2, he does not know. And so in the face of uncertainty in verse 4, he's just standing there, doing nothing, not sowing any seed, waiting. Basically, he doesn't sow any seed in the field, which will never return a harvest. And his only activity is to wait for perfect conditions. And by showing us the farmer, the preacher is giving us a practical warning that we can apply to the situations in our life, both practical and spiritual. How do we respond when life is out of control for us or feels out of control? Or when we have reason to fear that something bad might happen? Oftentimes our response is to do nothing. And we keep putting off what must be done. Particularly in spiritual matters. Are there times that you don't sow the seeds of the gospel because the conditions don't seem perfect? Yeah, my neighbor's gruff. My neighbor rarely says hi to me. Oh, I mean, I, I, I know them. They're as, they're as far from the kingdom of God as possible. I'm not quite sure exactly how to share the gospel. I mean, we can come up with a myriad of excuses. There's always a plausible excuse for delaying. That's what the man did in the parable of the talents. He didn't want to take a risk, so what did he do? He buried it and received no return. We must take risks for the kingdom. Even in the face of uncertainty, we must trust God is there. God is present. Think about Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower. He sows seed along 
the path. He gets snatched up by the birds. He sees, sows seeds along the rocky area. He sows seeds that end up in the thorns. But he sows seeds. And then he sows seeds into good soil. And a harvest grows. A harvest occurs. He sowed that seed knowing that what he threw down, some would be snatched away. Some would wither and die. Some would be choked. But he also believed that there would be a harvest. He didn't stand around waiting for perfect conditions to sow the seed. But he sowed in the face of uncertainty because he had faith that God would be the one to cause the seed to grow. And that is how we're to live. Listen, Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Sow seeds no matter what the conditions are. And the promises that he gives us is that he will always be with us even till the end of the age. We can live by faith boldly because we believe that God is always present with us, working in his sovereignty behind the scenes. That is who God is. We live a life of faith by willingly taking risks for the kingdom because we believe God is faithful, by responding boldly in the face of uncertainty because we believe God is present. And thirdly, we live a life of faith by working diligently in the face of mystery because we believe God is all wise. Verses 5 and 6. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything That's mystery. In the morning sow your seed, and at the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. The preacher here continues to give us vivid imagery to draw our attention and to help us not forget the wisdom he is teaching. In verse 5, he uses this analogy to remind us of how little knowledge we have compared to God. We don't know. There are mysteries in our lives. Mysteries about God. Mysteries about the kingdom of God. Mysteries about why things happen and why things don't happen. Mystery upon mystery. And sometimes that mystery, for some, is just too much. Not for us. In verse 5, he uses the word spirit here. As you do not know the way the spirit, which is the same Hebrew word for the word wind that we see in verse 4, his analogy points to the wind as an analogy for the mysterious purposes of God. Remember in John 3, Nicodemus, Jesus is talking to him and he says, listen, you do not know which way the wind blows. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. We don't always know when and where and how and why God is working the way he is working. It's a mystery to us. And it can be frustrating for us to not know why God allows our strange circumstances. Why he permits our difficult experiences. Why he ordains our suffering. Why he hides the reason from us. 
But we live a life of faith by working diligently in the faiths of mystery because we believe God is all wise. That behind all of this mystery, all of these circumstances, all of our experiences, all the things we do not know, as the preacher says here four times, is an all-wise God. Brothers and sisters, if you do not believe God is all-wise in every matter and circumstance of your life, then you're in trouble. Then you're moving and you're taking steps towards atheism. You might have a functional profession of your belief in God. But is it really functional if you don't believe He is all-wise? The preacher tells us that our inability to know how God's Spirit works in conception and the formation of a baby. As you do not know, the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, who, who knows? As well as the circumstances which... He says, he goes on, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In other words, you can't really fully explain how the Spirit comes to the baby in the womb of a mother. It's mysterious. It's mysterious. How does the Spirit, the breath of God, give life? And so his observation here is you don't. You don't know. Accept your limitations. Don't attempt to control or explain the things you don't know, but live by faith, trusting in God who is good and wise and loving and caring and faithful. And here's a small thing you do know about life and birth. Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what you do know. Kent Hughes says this, what God does in our own lives is no less mysterious. Why did he take something away that we were hoping to keep or give us something that we never wanted to have? Why did our prayers go unanswered and our dreams go unfulfilled? But there are also happier mysteries, including the mystery of our own salvation. What made the Son of God willing to suffer and die for our sins, bearing our guilt and shame on the cross where he died naked and totally alone? Why did God choose us? of all people, to believe in Jesus and to receive life in His name? How did the Holy Spirit enable us to believe that the Bible really is the Word of God? Then there are the mysteries that surround the work of the church. Why does the gospel spread faster in one place than another? What is God's plan for vast nations of people that are lost in sin? Why does the suffering church seem to produce more spiritual fruit? What on earth is God doing? Oh, there are mysteries, brothers and sisters. And because there are mysteries, if we don't believe in an all-wise God who works faithfully, diligently, lovingly, caringly behind the scenes, we're in trouble. Zach Eswine in his book says, In any given season, we are tempted to imagine, think, speculate, meditate on, worry about, and mull over everything we do not know about the times in which we find ourselves. 
The preacher says that the way forward in our seasons is not found in rehearsing what we do not know, but in remaining faithful to what we do. Listen, there is never grace in speculation. Speculating about what might happen tomorrow does not come with grace. Where grace comes is trusting in an all-wise and good and sovereign God. There is much we don't know. And that should be okay with us if we trust God. Now, there are some things God has revealed to us that it should encourage us and sustain us and put faith in us because these are things that are all about Jesus Christ. Let me, let me tell you what you do know this morning because I've told you a lot of what you don't know. Let me tell you what you do know. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That is what you know this morning. You know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, he goes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know the grace of God. And you know in Christ your labor is not in vain. Yesterday morning as I was having my devotions, I was reading my book called A Diary of Private Prayer by John Bailey. And it was for May 20th. And here's part of the prayer that John Bailey prayed that I was reading yesterday morning that I thought was quite, quite appropriate for today. Almighty God, who by your infinite wisdom has ordained that I should live my life within these narrow bounds of time and circumstance, let me now go forth into the world with a brave and trustful heart. It has pleased you to withhold from me perfect knowledge. Therefore, deny me not the grace of faith by which I may lay hold of things unseen. You have given me little power to mold things to my own desire. Amen. Therefore, use your own omnipotence to bring your desires to pass within me. You have willed it that through labor and pain I should walk the upward way. Be then my fellow traveler as I go. Yeah, God is your fellow traveler. So regardless of the mysteries we face, the uncertainties that lay before us, and the inability to know what God knows, we still must in faith obey God and fulfill his purposes. And so in verse 6, he, he finishes his commands to us. He says, in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. For you don't know what's going to prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Just do it. Just do it. Just be faithful to sow. The preacher's exhortation to sow, though, is not just for farmers. It, uh, it applies to many areas of life. But he, if you, in the scripture, you realize that when the word sow or talking about the concept of sowing is used, it is most often typically with respect to the word of God. What we do with the word. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. 
Finally, Ken Hughes says this. He says, We sow the word when we read it, study it, and memorize it for ourselves, listening to the voice of God. We sow the word when we teach it to our children at bedtime or around the family dinner table. We sow the word when we give someone a Bible or use a simple verse from Scripture with a friend who needs to know Jesus. We sow the word when we take it to the prison, the nursing home, and the college campus. We sow the word when we support sound biblical preaching in our own church, as well as through missions that broadcast the gospel around the world. There is no single way to share the gospel. Just do it every way you can. Just do it every way you can. So application. Three things, just to close understanding this. The mysteries of God, the unknowing of God's plan and purposes, the mysteries of God are are simply a call to humility. Be humble. Stop arguing or complaining to God. He knows better. You don't. Have you ever thought, if, if I was in charge, I'd do it this way? Anybody? <laughs> Every time we encounter something that only God knows, we are reminded that He is God and we are not. Secondly, the mysteries of God are a call to faith. When we don't know what God is doing, we still trust that He knows what He's doing. They're a call to faith. They're a call to humility, a call to faith. And finally, the mysteries of God are a call to obedience. Cast your bread. Give to seven or eight. Sow your seed. And withhold not your hand. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live a life of faith by willingly taking risks for his kingdom because God is always faithful. By willingly, by responding boldly in the face of uncertainty because we believe God is always present. And by working diligently in the face of mystery because we believe God is all wise. So says the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the truth that stirs our souls and strengthens our hearts and clears our mind and gives us hope, empowers us to believe. Lord, thank you for this word that you have given to us because you breathed into this that we might breathe the life in the air of God. Lord, I pray that you would send this church home today aware of your sovereign plans and purposes for their good. For their good. May they rest in your promises in Christ's name. Amen.